In your Bibles today, the book of John, chapter 8, and verse 32. The book of John, chapter 8, and verse number 32. The subject today is exposing the gender lie, a biblical perspective. John, chapter 8, and verse number 32. It's just one verse that I want to read this morning. I always have you to stand out of respect for the Word of God, so I will do so, but you're just going to be able to stand up and sit down. It's pretty short. Okay, you ready? John chapter 8, if you will stand with me as we read a wonderful truth, a great, great truth and principle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall know the truth, the truth, and it's the truth that shall set you free. Read it with me, everybody together. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Thank you, and you may be seated. Heavenly Father, I come to you again today, and Lord, this morning I need a special help from you to be discerning, to know what to say and not to say, to know how to say it. I know this is a, a sensitive subject. And yet I want to instruct our people that they have a biblical perspective of this issue. I pray, Lord, that in doing so, I will guard families and children from what could be an eternal tragedy in their lives. So I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be acceptable to you. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. Martin Luther said, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely the point that the world and the devil are attacking at the moment, I am not confessing Christ. Where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all other battlefields besides is mere flight and and disgrace if he flounders at that point. And so today, I would like to speak to you on the place that I think Satan and the world is attacking God's truth today. It's the area, pardon me, of what we call gender The word gender or transgender is the T in the LGBTQ3A plus and so on and on acronym that's been formed that describes the whole spectrum of um, sexual activity today. The categories, I think everybody knows them, but I'll go over them. It's L for lesbian, G for gay, B for bisexual, T for transgender, Q for queer. I would not have used that word from the pulpit a few years ago, but that is now the label that they have chosen. And so I'm not being offensive in trying to do so. I don't want you to confuse transgenderism with homosexuality. I think a lot of Christians do. Lesbians and gays are people who are sexually attracted to their same sex. A transgender is someone who does not identify themselves with the biological sex of their own body, 
They desire to change their gender, if you will. That leads me to another term, and we need to nail down some terms here, and the term is gender ideology. Because over the last few years, um, there has developed a, a doctrine of, of uh, gender, if you will. It's a course of formal study in prestigious universities around the country. And gender ideology refers to the idea uh, that sex, your sex is biology. Your sex is determined by biology. Your gender is socially assigned to you. Your, so your sex, biology, and your gender, what you consider yourself to be, may not be the same. And out of that, of course, is born the idea of transgenderism. Healthline.com, uh, important website, lists 68 different sexual preferences and identities now. Can you imagine? 68 different ways that people describe themselves in their sexual life. That leads to another term I want to define, and that's gender dysphoria. That's a psychiatric term. That's a psychological term. That term has the idea of it refers to a state of intense uneasiness and dissatisfaction with a person's life regarding their gender. And so it was recently, until recently, it was considered a mental illness, recent, uh, uh, literally. But now it's viewed as gender dysphoria, a, a, a sense of intense uneasiness or dissatisfaction with my gender, with who I am as God made me. So my subject today is a profoundly important one. Can a human being change his or her sex or gender from the one which he or she was born with? Is that even possible? And it's profoundly, more, uh, profoundly important. But today we hear people talking about the superficial areas of it. For example, we hear a lot about men competing with women in women's sports, and that is important, but it doesn't go to the heart of what we're talking about. We hear a lot about people choosing their pronouns. <laughs> well, that's pretty superficial compared to what the real essence of this issue is. It's, what I'm talking about is more consequential than the drag queen story hour, though that's really important today because it's sexualizing our children, which nobody that's thinking right wants to see happen. And so the issue goes very deep into the psyche, the very soul of humanity. I believe today this is a battle for sanity. I believe it's a battle for truth, and that's why I read John 8 and 32. It really is a battle for God's Word. Do we accept what the teaching of Christianity, the teaching of the Scripture says about gender? Or are we going to look for our definitions else, elsewhere? Are we going to listen to the, the babble, the noise, 
that comes from the world, from the media, the corporate world, the medical world, the world all around us that's coming at us from every area. Are we going to listen to that, or are we going to listen to what God's Word says? Gender activists insist that everybody else agree with them. If we don't acknowledge them and what they say to be truth, then they say we're trying to erase them. That's the term they use, meaning basically we're trying to kill them. We're trying to eradicate them. That's certainly not in my mind this morning. On the other hand, if I participate in their lie, then I'm bearing false witness myself. So I cannot agree I cannot acknowledge that which is contrary to both God's Word and the laws of nature itself. How big is the problem? The Williams Institute of the UCLA Law School says, and I quote, the number of young people identifying as transgender has doubled in the last four or five years. One in five people who identify as transgender are 13 to 17 years old. 20% of the people identifying as transgenders in the whole nation today are teenagers, 13 to 17. The number of minors receiving a diagnosis of gender dysphoria tripled from 2017 to 2021, four years. Last year, or two years ago, in 2021 alone, there were 41,000 youth that were diagnosed with gender dysphoria. Listen to this. TikTok logged 50.2 billion, billion with a B, 50.2 billion views on the hashtag trans within the last year. 50 billion, that's what, six times the population of the entire planet right now looking for, searching for information on this one subject. How do you explain the rapid emergence of tens of thousands of gender-confused children now who are questioning their sexual identity, or so we're being told? I don't want to say anything today with rancor, with anger, with hostility or hatred, because I remember my very first experience with a transgendered person, and I remember it with sadness. I remember how I felt. I was in Atlanta, Georgia, in a car with Al Janney and Cecil Hodges, two pastor friends, men older than me. This would have been in 1980, 80 to 85, somewhere in that area. I was in Atlanta, downtown, on a little side street behind the First Baptist Church. We had an appointment at First Baptist, and we were looking for a parking place, and there weren't many. And this little tiny, narrow street, old street, and it had a stoplight, and we stopped there, and there was a little embankment on our right. And a man walked down, and he walked right in front of our car, three feet in front of us. And I remember looking at him. He had on a dress, a white dress, high heel shoes, 
long hair down on his shoulders, heavy, heavy makeup. And what made it so grotesque is his beard was growing through his makeup. Eyeliner, heavy fingernail polish, the whole thing, like you would see a highly dressed woman wearing. And he walks right in front of us. And I remember my feeling. That was the first time I had really confronted it right up. And I was 40 years old then, I guess, or so. And I remember I couldn't get that off my mind how sad I felt for this human being, this soul that Christ had created. I remember thinking about him and that picture being in my mind for days. We talked about it, of course, three men sitting there in the car. And I felt compassion for him. I kept thinking that's somebody's son. And somewhere in America today, there's a mom and a dad who are absolutely brokenhearted. Things didn't turn out like they naturally should. That was my first experience. I've been trying to understand the issue since it's so hot. It's a theological issue. At the root, it's really a spiritual issue. In your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 1. And in verse 26, and uh, you're familiar with the passage, but it'll do you good to just look at it in your Bible again and read the words of it with me. Genesis 1 and 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Notice the pronouns, they're plural, the trinity. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And so God gave man all the dominion here for the planet. In verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. God created humans in his image. That image is psychological, intellectual, emotional, spiritual. It's not primarily physical, though there may be something there that we don't have time to get into. You notice in the passage there that man came in two sexes, male and female, both of them equally bearing the image of God. In Genesis 3, Satan comes and he tempts that man and that woman. And so that man and that woman fall into sin. We call it the fall. And the image of God becomes distorted in them. So the image of God is not as clear. It's not as plain in you and me as it was in Adam and Eve. It's now been distorted by sin. And the Bible says that from the time that man fell into sin, his mind was blinded, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not. Notice it's the mind that is blinded. The God of this world, Satan, the devil, has blinded the intellectual side of man that he cannot see the truth if he gets into certain areas. 
Jesus affirmed that this verse was true in Genesis, in Matthew 19 and 4. Jesus was being questioned about marriage, and he affirmed the truth of Genesis 1, 26 and 7 when he said, Have you not read that he that made them in the beginning made them male and female? And so Jesus absolutely affirms and backs up the writings of Moses from Genesis chapter 1. And so when I hear somebody say, I'm something other than a male or a female, I know that's not true. I know that Jesus said that God only made two sexes, two genders, however you want to describe it. And I know that Jesus never lied. When somebody says, I'm transitioning, I know that's not true. You can't go from one sex to the other. You can say that you're going. You can make certain cosmetic and superficial changes. You can't transition from who God made you. And to go along with it, I can't do that. I can't use their favorite pronoun because I would be them bearing false witness myself. So gender ideology becomes a gospel issue. It's an attack on God's Word. It's an attack on Jesus Christ, whether or not He told the truth or not. God's Word existed before the universe was ever created. In the beginning, God spoke and the universe was created. The most permanent valued thing in all of the universe is the Word of God. It cannot be changed. It cannot fail. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. They're always relevant. And so the gender ideology is not only an attack on the Word of God, it's also an attack on God's sovereignty. It says, God, you didn't know what you were doing when you made me like you made me. God, I have a better idea about my design than you, than you had. But it's not only a theological issue, it's an anthropological issue. That's a big word. I just wanted you to know I knew it. Anthropology is the study of man, the study of man. And humans are mammals. Mammals are dimorphic. There's another one. I'm really trying to impress you, but this is in the literature. I got to use it. I hate it. Mammals are dimorphic. That means they're male and female. In addition to their obvious physical differences in their bodies, our maleness and our femaleness goes even deeper. Almost every cell in our bodies is either XX for female or it's XY for male. Take, for example, the design of the eye. Girls have more cones in their eyes, which focus on on color and texture. That's why we men get our wives to go help us buy a suit because the women see color better than we do and texture, and that's why, they are, uh, that's why they can design our house. They can decorate the home better than, than most men. Boys, on the other hand, have more rods. They fo- their eyes can focus on location, direction, and speed better than the female. And these are general observations, of course. It doesn't mean in every single case. Morin Gershani and Shamul Petrikovsky 
wrote a landmark book, and it's called The Landscape of Sex. It's a scholarly work. You can see it on the Internet if you'd like to look it up. In it, they cataloged 6,500 differences between males and females. Men and women are not the same. That sounds like a trite statement, doesn't it? But it's one that in our context and culture today, it, it needs to be said. In the book, Why Gender Matters, What Parents and Teachers Need to Know About This Emerging Science, a man named Leonard Sachs wrote, brain tissue is intrinsically different. Tomboys, for example, I'm quoting, have more in common with very feminine girls than they have with boys. So we are what God made us. Researchers, for example, have discovered that our brains are wired differently. Now, after you've been married a few years, we understand that, don't we? We don't think always the same. And our brains are wired. And what we found out is that in the men, the the neural pathways go from the front to the back and back again, instantaneously, like that. But in the female, it goes from side to side, from hemisphere to hemisphere. And so if you think of it like a river, The men, our brains operate up and down the river. The the ladies, the females, operate from one bank to the other. And all this is instantaneous, but it's, um, it's, it's research confirmed. Last year, in the confirmation hearing for a Supreme Court justice, her name was Ketanji Brown Jackson, Senator Marsha Blackman asked her, what is a woman? You remember that? She either couldn't or wouldn't answer the question. I think she could have. I think she would not answer the question. So a woman is now seated on the Supreme Court making decisions for us who can't tell us the difference in a man and a woman. Wow. And we're the greatest nation on the earth. Man, I'd hate to go look at some of the others. Wow. Where is this coming from? What is its source? A verse you ought to always remember is Ecclesiastes 1 and 9. There's nothing new under the sun. And that means that sexual rebellion is not a new thing. In Deuteronomy 22 and verse 5, I think this is worthy of us looking it up. Would you turn your Bible back to the book of Deuteronomy? And uh, you just remember things better when you see them, so I don't want to get in such a hurry that I pass through it too quickly. Deuteronomy 22 and verse 5, the law of the Lord says, The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth to a man. In other words, a woman should not cross-dress. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are an abomination. Look at what God says about cross-dressing. All that do so are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. In ancient Greece, this problem goes all the way back, so God here forbid cross-dressing in ancient Israel. 
In ancient Greece, little boys were groomed. They were set up and conditioned as sexual objects to be used by the upper-class men. In other words, pedophilia is a very old problem. The Apostle Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians 11 and 14, says, long hair on a man for sexual purposes is a shame. In other words, God rebukes any practice that blurs the distinction between men and women. Let me say that again. God's Word rebukes any practice that blurs the distinction between men and women. And in America, a sexual revolution started in our country, and of course, during my lifetime. I believe it was Satan's attempt, it is Satan's attempt to corrupt America and destroy our moral fabric, and boy, he's done a good job of that. It began in 1948 with the Kinsey Report, which was supposed to be a scholarly report. Turns out it's had a lot of problems and doesn't have much credibility today. But it promoted the most deviant sexual behaviors. It gave birth to what we now call the sexual revolution, which upset and overturned every value regarding sexual activity that the country had ever had, that Christians had held dearly. In 1960, we invented the pill. It enabled people then to have sex without fear of pregnancy. And then in the 60s, we had Woodstock. We had the hippie revolution. And uh, it wasn't just about music. It was about free love. The theme was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I remember it. I was a young person at that point. It was about sexual freedom with no limits, no boundaries, no rules. Whatever you feel like doing, do it. And no, don't, don't let anybody judge you for doing so. The sexual revolution of the 60s. Followed by the gay rights movement of the 70s, the mainstreaming of homosexuality and acceptance of it by the public. And now, of course, a few years ago, the legalization and institutionalism, institutionalizing of uh, gay marriage, and then today, the gender movement, and sadly, the sexualizing of our children, one of the saddest of all chapters, I think. There's a verse in Genesis 6 that describes the moral climate just before God sent the flood, the deluge. In Genesis 6, it describes the people of that culture with this term. Every imagination of the thoughts and intents of their heart was evil continually. Every imagination, everything they could conceive, the imagination of their hearts and minds was evil continually. You remember what happened. You remember that God brought judgment on the earth that the evil came up in the face of God to the extent that he, just said, he said, I'll destroy all flesh. And we believe that he did, according to the Scripture. This issue has served to be more divisive than probably any other issue, at least currently in our culture. Ryan Anderson of the Claremont Institute, a very respected organization on the West Coast, he wrote, 
quote, I think we are more divided now than we've ever than we were then, referring to the Civil War. President Lincoln said, we all prayed to the same God. We all believed in the same Constitution. We differed over the question of slavery. But today, nobody could say we all pray to the same God. No longer can we say we all believe in the same Constitution. The surveys say a lot of people would like to replace our Constitution. So we've lost common ground. We've lost the very basis on which people with differing opinions can come together and, and civilly sit down and resolve an issue because we don't even pray to the same God and we don't believe in the same law, the same constitution. Who or what, who or what is behind this movement? What's driving it? Well, the biggest offender to me is secular education. You know, what is taught in the classroom in one generation will be believed and practiced in the government and society in the next generation. And this has been going on really for a long time. Gender theory and ideology have been taught for decades in our universities. Do you know that you can go and earn a Ph.D. today in gender theory? Can you imagine somebody going and spending their entire academic career, four years of undergrad, and two or three more in, in master's degree, and then another couple of years as a Ph.D., seven, eight, nine years of school to earn a degree in gender theory? Or you can get a Ph.D. in queer theory. Unbelievable being pushed in secular education and sadly now down to the kindergarten level in a lot of states now. Thank God for South Carolina on that one so far. Government's pushing it. You know the government is under the control of the far left and they're seeking to mainstream all of this. For example, if you look at the Biden cabinet, you have a man named Sam Brenton. Sam Brenton is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Office of Nuclear Energy. He is in charge of handling the nuclear waste in this country. That's him. He identifies himself as non-binary. He uses singular plural pronouns. In other words, if you refer to him, you have to call him they or themselves. He no longer is with the agency. He was fired twice. He's been convicted of stealing luggage at the Washington airport. And then there's Richard Levine, the assistant secretary of HHS. He refers to himself as Rachel, a man who identifies as a woman. In the Federalist this week, a very respected uh, conservative paper, the date, 5-3-23, the headline is, yes, the trans movement is coming for your children. And it tells the story of the first trans legislator in, uh, uh, legislator in Minnesota. He proposed a bill that would make pedophilia a protected minority class. It was voted down, thankfully, by the rest of the assembly, but these are the efforts that are being made. This is how it's being pushed. The media is working overtime 
to push this down our throats, of course, especially to the children. A man who calls himself RuPaul is a drag queen. He's been on national television now for a number of years. He gets 30 minutes or an hour a week to propagandize his views to the American public. The U.S. Navy's latest recruitment ad features a drag queen. Don't you know a lot of real red-blooded Americans are going to jump on board and say, I want to join the Navy after seeing that? It really is. When I say we're in a battle for sanity right now, we have Dylan Mulvaney, famous for the Bud Light commercial, a 26-year-old man who dresses like a little girl. Does he have influence? Oh, you bet. He has 10.8 million TikTok followers. 10.8 million. I hope none of them are our kids. Lisa Pittman is a researcher, and she published a peer-reviewed article on PLOS 1 on August 16, 2018. She said this. This is her conclusion. Young girls, listen, parents, parents who have young girls, parents who have preteen and teenage girls, young girls who self-identify as transgender during adolescence, did so after being immersed in social media for extended periods of time. The increase is not a naturally occurring phenomenon. It is an Internet-fueled peer contagion. i read it again. Young girls who identify as transgender during adolescence do so after being immersed in social media for extended periods of time. The increase is not a naturally occurring phenomenon, but an Internet-fueled peer contagion. Parts of the medical establishment are pushing gender ideology. The American Medical Association and the American Academy of Pediatrics have committees They establish what are called the standards of care, the standards under which doctors treat each disease. And so the physician, in order to be paid by the insurance company or Medicare or Medicaid, he has to, and to protect himself against liability also, he has to practice medicine. Uh, His practice must comply with these standards. The standards of care, though, for this particular issue, gender dysphoria, have been heavily politicized. The committees have been dominated by people who believe in gender ideology. For example, the lead author of the guidelines for the AAP, American Academy of Pediatrics, was a 25-year-old trans-identified female who is not a doctor. And she's writing the guidelines for pediatric doctors to deal with this issue. Only five of the 12 authors whose names appeared on the official guideline were even physicians. So you see how this has been highly politicized. The medically recommended treatment is gender-affirming care, which begins with what's called a social transition that affirms the child's self-reported gender identity. 
the child is asked to pick a new name. The parents, the teachers, classmates are told to go along and use that name and the preferred pronouns. The child is encouraged to present themselves in public in their preferred gender dress. If this does not resolve the child's gender dysphoria, the next step is medical, puberty blockers, opposite-sex hormones, surgery. Parents are told that if they do not embrace the treatment, they're putting their child at risk of suicide, and they may even forfeit their parental rights. A television viewer sent me a photocopy of an admission form that's being used in one of our local hospitals. And um, she said, I'm just incensed. Apparently, she works in that area of the hospital. And it has a form that when you were admitted, you may be asked, are you male? Are you female? Are you gay? Are you lesbian? Are you non-binary? Are you transitioning? So I read it the other day, and I thought, boy, I sure hope I don't have to go to the hospital. But if I do, and they ask me those questions, I'm going to say, well, I'm, I'm a trans. I want to be a tractor. <laughs> Call me John Deere from now on. <laughs> if, you, uh, if you ask me a stupid question, I'm going to give you a stupid answer in return. Huh? What's the biblical perspective? Right quick, let me wind it up. Let me say that just because you are a Christian, you don't necessarily have a, um, a biblical worldview. A lot of people think, well, I'm saved. I have a personal relationship with Christ. So that naturally follows. I have a biblical worldview. I'm going to tell you today, most Christians that I'm familiar with in the world today, they don't have a biblical worldview. They may think they do, but they do not. So just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're thinking right about this. You know where this begins? This begins with creation. A biblical worldview goes all the way back and takes into account creation. God created them in His image, male and female created He them. That's where we start. And then we have to take into account the fall. Have you ever considered that Satan came to Adam and Eve, and what? how did he tempt them? In what area did he tempt them? He tempted them in the area of making them dissatisfied with God's design in their life. What? God told you you couldn't do that? Why, he's, he's withholding something from you. You would be happier if you would... Uh, Go another direction. Listen to me. And you go ahead and eat that fruit. He made them dissatisfied with God's design. He said, you shall be like God's if you follow my direction. And because of the fall, Christ had to come. Sin had to be paid for. And at the cross, Jesus died for our sins. This is the gospel. And in love, he paid for our sins. He paid my sin debt and your sin debt. He extended grace and mercy to us, even though we did not deserve it in any way. There on the cross, he satisfied the justice of God. As God's wrath was poured out upon our sin, 
that Jesus Christ was bearing. And he suffered beyond our comprehension. But listen, here's something that I, I, I think it needs to be very clearly said. The biblical worldview doesn't end with the cross. It ends with the return of Christ back to the earth. As we sung a few moments ago, when we hear the midnight cry and the thrill that it brings to us as Christians to know our Savior came once to die. He's coming again to reign. He's coming back again. So the Bible says almost 1,800 times. You see, history has a flow. History had a beginning. History has an ending. History is going to have a consummation. There's going to be a time when it's all over. The world never thinks about that. The world thinks things are going to go on and on and on for decades and millennium, on and on and on forever and ever and ever. Uh Uh-uh, not if you believe the Bible, not if what Jesus said was the truth. He said, I will come again, John 14 and 1. And that makes everything different. Everything is different if he, in fact, is coming back again. And so God has this plan to restore everything that we lost in the fall, to take us back to before the fall conditions in the Garden of Eden. This is God's plan for his universe. Second Timothy talks about the last days, the time right before Jesus is going to return. It refers to it as perilous times, dangerous times. In 2 Timothy 3 and 8, it says that one of the last day signs is that men will resist the truth. This issue is man's resistance to God's truth as revealed in our own bodies. Romans 1 and 25, they changed the truth of God to a lie, a perfect description of the issue. Romans 1 and 30, and then they became haters of God. And so a young woman trying to transition into a man takes a gun and goes into a Christian school in Nashville, Tennessee, because there's anger against God and Christianity. And she kills even little children. They won't release the reports about her. I'd like to know how much testosterone she was taking, how many other hormones that would completely turn her upside down. And in verse 30, Romans 1, 26, they became haters of God. And 2 Thessalonians 2 and 10 says that people received not the love of the truth. They received not the love of the truth. And so God sends a strong delusion, mental confusion, that they should believe alive. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed.